What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. As long as they would be, as long as he would be dominant over them. Um, he didn't care if they were completely submissive to everyone, like me including, or if they would dominate me. It was autumn of 2012 when a young student at the University of Hampshire left a late-night class to drive to a friend's apartment. According to the friend, she never showed up. An investigation into the disappearance was launched, and investigators would reveal a dark underbelly to the world of BDSM, a world where consent is key, but a world where sometimes sadistic people are lurking, ready to take advantage. Chester is a small town located in Rockingham County, New Hampshire. In the year of 2010, almost 5,000 people called Chester home. It's considered one of the oldest towns in the state of New Hampshire, and it's a popular commuter town for students at the University of New Hampshire, located around a 30 minutes drive away. One resident of Chester was 19-year-old Lizzie Marriott. Lizzie was born on the 10th of June, 1993 and she had grown up in Westboro, Massachusetts, where she graduated from Westboro High School in 2011. Lizzie had been the prom queen, and she was very active in chorus. After high school, Lizzie enrolled at the University of New Hampshire, where she was studying marine biology. She would travel to and from university from her aunt and uncle, Tony and Becky Hannah's home. They allowed Lizzie to move in with them at their home on Raven Drive, Chester, New Hampshire. Lizzie was known as a good and hard-working student. She had a close group of friends and she was really close with her parents, Bob and Melissa. 
In Lizzie's free time, she could be found reading or walking her dog, Shadow. Her friends described her as fun-loving and goofy, with close friend Nicole Downey stating, She was very lovable, very friendly, very outgoing. To help pay her way through university, Lizzie worked at Target in Greenland, and she also volunteered as a guide at the New England Aquarium in Boston. Lizzie had been volunteering here for around four years. She first started in January of 2009 as part of the aquarium's World of Water training program for teenagers. It was something that Lizzie absolutely adored, so she stayed, working her way up to guiding tour programs. Her favourite exhibit was the Edge of the Sea exhibit, which you may know as the Touch Tanks. Lizzie really enjoyed animals, so volunteering at the aquarium suited her perfectly. Those who worked with her in both Target and the aquarium said that she was a model employee, always greeting people with a massive smile. Lizzie was creative and she enjoyed poetry. Marine biology was also something that Lizzie cared deeply about and she wanted to become a marine biologist so that she could educate people about the water and underwater creatures. She once wrote in a college essay, I've always loved the ocean and its inhabitants. Just like my visitors, I want to learn more and do my part. Someday, I'm determined to be a prominent figure when it comes to protecting our oceans. I want to help everyone learn the wonders of our surrounding waters. But until then, I'm more than happy being the entropid ocean explorer. Lizzie really had a busy schedule, but she always made time for her girlfriend, Brittany Atwood. In fact, she was the first girlfriend that Lizzie had ever had. They had met for the first time in January of 2012, and then in February, they became romantically involved. Brittany described Lizzie as beautiful, kind-hearted, caring, trusting, goofy, silly, and experimental, before adding, I could go on and on. On the 9th of October 2012, Lizzie was in a night class at the university when she texted Brittany, informing her that she was going to visit a friend's apartment in Dover after class. She had also left a note behind for her aunt and uncle, informing them of the same, announcing that she would be back home late around midnight. That night, however, Lizzie never returned home. The next morning, she didn't show up to her shift at Target. Lizzie's parents then received a phone call from Brittany. She was worried about Lizzie. She had sent her some text messages and tried to call her, but she hadn't heard anything back. Lizzie was always in contact with Brittany. It hadn't yet been noticed by Lizzie's aunt or uncle that she was missing. She hadn't left university until 9pm, so when she was expected home that night after visiting her friend, her aunt and uncle were already in bed. Then in the morning, they thought she had simply woken up and went to work. However, this phone call was quite an alarming one. Lizzie hadn't shown up at her friend's house. She hadn't returned home and then she hadn't shown up for work. Lizzie was reported missing by her concerned family. To just vanish like this was very out of character for Lizzie, as it would be for most people. She always kept her friends and family in the loop of her activities, and would even leave handwritten notes of her daily plans for her aunt and uncle. Lizzie was driving a tan 2001 Mazda Tribute, with a New Hampshire license plate, reading... 3045397. Investigators asked the public to keep an eye out for Lizzie or her car. 
Missing person posters described her as standing at 5 feet 5 inches tall, weighing 130 pounds with blonde hair and blue eyes. Investigators interviewed Lizzie's friend, Catherine McDonough, whose house she was scheduled to go to. Catherine had just recently met Lizzie at the Target where they both worked. She informed them that the plan was for Lizzie to drive to her apartment after class. They were going to spend some time at a local cemetery taking pictures. She told them that when Lizzie didn't show up and when she didn't answer her phone, she went looking around the apartment complex and then checked the local convenience store. But Lizzie was nowhere to be seen. Feeling dismayed, McDonough said she went to Pune Hill Cemetery alone, and while here she heard some strange noises. She presumed that it was Lizzie trying to scare her. She explained that while she was at the cemetery, her phone died, and she took some photographs on a cheap camera which she ultimately deleted after saving them onto her computer. While investigators were stopping short of saying they speculated that foul play could have had a part to play in Lizzie's disappearance, They did reveal that there had been no activity on her cell phone, credit cards, or her social media. They broadcast a bulletin to police nationwide with a description of Lizzie and the car that she was driving. Lizzie's family travelled down to New Hampshire to assist in the search. They also announced that they were putting forward a $10,000 reward for any information that could lead to her safe return. Investigators would ramp up the search, requesting the assistance of the FBI. The search team would scour the area, focusing on the coastline and with the assistance of helicopters. While investigators had not said they feared foul play, they did announce that they had not ruled anything out, including foul play, or even that Lizzie could have driven off the road accidentally. One of the first things that investigators wanted to do was try to retrace Lizzie's last known movements. Her cell phone records were examined, and it was uncovered that Lizzie's cell phone was last used in Dover at 10.11pm. As investigators conducted their investigation and search, Lizzie's family did the same. They blanketed Dover and the surrounding area with missing person flyers with Lizzie's face emblazoned on the front. They had printed over 1,000 flyers. Her grandmother, Susan Marriott, moved into the apartment where Lizzie lived with her aunt and uncle so that she could tend to the phone in the hopes that Lizzie would call home or somebody would call with some information regarding her whereabouts. Police officer Nicholas McClellan recollected the search. Uh, Around 2 o'clock I met with Elizabeth's parents at the police department. I also had uh, Rockingham County Dispatch pull up the GPS coordinates for the last activity uh, originating from Elizabeth's cell phone and reviewed that. I had uh, the Dover Police Department check different areas of town uh, for the vehicle uh, based on the cell phone records. Um, I attempted to try to ID and track down anyone that Elizabeth may have had contact with, and I had the UNH Police Department put out a campus alert. Bob, Lizzie's father, spoke with WMUR-TV and said, This is the parents' nightmare, not knowing. There are so many what-ifs. I don't want to think about right now. The family were assisted by a non-profit organisation that helps families of missing people map out potential places they could have travelled. Lizzie's friends and family would conduct their own ground searches for her, focusing on areas that the non-profit suggested and areas between the university and Dover. They would pull all of their resources to try and find Lizzie. 
A hashtag was created on Twitter, hashtag FindLizzie, and the family would purchase three domains, findlizzie.com and two other variations of the same URL. They also started a Facebook page where they would provide updates on the search for Lizzie and arrange their own volunteer-led searches. Investigators would chat with all of Lizzie's friends and acquaintances to try and build a portrait of Lizzie in the hopes that it could generate some leads as to where she was or what could have happened to her. They all said the same thing. Lizzie had absolutely no enemies. As the search for Lizzie continued, her car would be found in a parking lot on a campus in Durham. This was miles away from Dover, where Lizzie had been driving to that night, and where her phone was pinged to at around 10pm. The discovery did very little to answer any questions surrounding her disappearance. In fact, it just led to more questions. Two days into the search, there was a noticeable police presence on Pierce Island in Portsmouth, which was around 12 miles southeast from Dover. Pierce Island is a 27-acre island, which separates the city of Portsmouth from the Piscataqua River, which opens up into the Atlantic Ocean. The search was in connection to the disappearance of Lizzie. They blocked the bridge that leads to Pierce Island and cordoned off the nearby Prescott Park with police tape. The US Coast Guard was called in to assist in the search. They would be using sonar and underwater cameras to scan through the murky waters. As the search was underway, a press conference was held, during which it was revealed that somebody had been arrested in connection with Lizzie's disappearance. He was identified as 29-year-old Seth Mazelia, and he was charged with second-degree murder. While Lizzie's body had not yet been found, it was announced that investigators had uncovered enough information to determine that Lizzie was dead and that she had been murdered. Mazelia was a martial arts instructor who was active in community theatre. He had a black belt in karate. He had also graduated from the University of New Hampshire in 2006 with a bachelor's degree in theatre. The arrest had come as a massive surprise to those who knew Mazelia. Much like Lizzie, he was known as a hard worker during his time at university. Just the year beforehand, he had graduated from the Portsmouth Police Department's Citizen Police Academy, which is a program that aims to bring citizens closer to police and raise public awareness to crime. Nobody that knew him could imagine that he was capable of such violence. Craig Faulkner, who worked at a theatre company where Mazelia had auditioned, had spoken with him for around 20 minutes, three days after Lizzie had vanished. He said that Mazelia had told him, Life is good. Alison Abernathy, who lived in the same apartment complex as Mazelia, told the media that she had chatted with Mazelia a handful of times. He liked to chat about his acting career and his interest in martial arts. At first, she said she thought he came across as a relatively pleasant guy, but after a while, she'd gotten a strange vibe from him. Then one night, he said something that left her feeling uneasy. He told her that he had a short fuse. For those who knew both Mazelia and Lizzie, the arrest had come as an even more of a shock. See, Mazelia was the boyfriend of Lizzie's friend Catherine, the person who she was arranged to visit on the night she vanished. Even more peculiar 
Mazelia and Catherine lived together in that apartment. This revelation only led to an onslaught of more questions. For example, did Mazelia lure Lizzie to the apartment, pretending to be Catherine? As Mazelia was arrested, investigators put up a cordon around a third-floor apartment at the Sawyer Mills Apartments on Mill Street in Dover. A special crime scene van pulled up alongside the apartment and forensic experts entered the home. Investigators chatted with neighbours and there was one of them that informed them that on the night Lizzie went missing, they had heard a deafening scream coming from a woman inside the apartment. The tragic revelation that Lizzie was dead was a very unexpected one and the community were jarred as the tributes came flooding in. University of New Hampshire President Mark Huddleston released a prepared statement which read, We were greatly saddened to learn of Lizzie's death, and we extend our deepest sympathies to her family and friends. Lizzie was a new member of the university community, and will be missed in our classrooms. Our focus now will be on supporting our campus community during this difficult time. Later that day, the school held a moment of silence in honour of Lizzie during the men's hockey game. That night, a candlelight vigil was held at Bay State Commons. Around 500 people gathered as Bob thanked the crowd for all of the support for assisting in the search for his daughter. He said, Everyone is unique. They're all formed from the community where they grew up. Lizzie is a great tribute to everyone here. And for that, I thank you most of all. He struggled to hold his composure as he said, Together, we created an angel and she's home in heaven. A candle was lit to symbolise Lizzie's spirit, and then that candle was used to light the candles that the crowd were holding. Reverend John Taylor spoke to the crowd, emphasising unity and love to make it through tough times. He stated, We must confront evil with love. Love is stronger than hate. A lot of the people who attended the candlelight vigil did not personally know Lizzie or her family, but they were drawn to the vigil to offer support. Most of the community had participated in the search for Lizzie. Westboro High School, where Lizzie graduated in 2011, held their own memorial for her. There was a large banner displayed in the lobby where students were allowed to write tributes. A lot of those at the school hadn't actually met Lizzie, but they had all heard wonderful things about her from other students who had, and from the teachers. Lizzie's brother Robert was still a student at the school, and many of the messages were directed at the family, offering them support and condolences. The University of New Hampshire would follow suit, holding what was described as a remembrance of Lizzie. Her family were in attendance, and Bob recollected to the crowd how Lizzie had always loved critters, and her passion for it had been stoked during a weekly marine biology camp. It was this passion that ultimately led Lizzie to the University of New Hampshire, University President Mark Huddleston told those in attendance that while Lizzie had only been at the university for a short period of time, she was very much a part of the community. He said, Losing Lizzie was losing part of ourselves. I take solace in seeing how we stand together in times like these. Before the remembrance came to a close, Bob asked the students in attendance to hug their parents the next opportunity they got, telling them, God bless you all and thank you for caring about my daughter. The next day, the search for Lizzie's body continued. Investigators asked authorities in Maine and Massachusetts 
to keep an eye on their shores, in case Lizzie's body washed ashore. They continued to search the waters with sonar and camera equipment, and deployed a cadaver K-9. The search along the waters was a very strenuous one, and the search crews battered harsh waters and gusty winds. Lizzie's family would release a statement in which they described the ordeal they were experiencing as the worst nightmare for a parent. They asked the public to pray for the searchers. They knew that their daughter was gone, but without a body, they couldn't really begin the grieving process. As the search was in full swing, Mazelia appeared in court to be arraigned on the second-degree murder charge. During the arraignment, Judge Stephen Morrison revealed that Lizzie had been strangled or smothered to death. He then entered a no plea on Mazelia's behalf and ordered him to be held without bail. Outside of court, New Hampshire Senior Assistant Attorney General Jane Young would provide some more information, revealing that the murder of Lizzie had happened inside Mazelia's apartment in Dover, the very same apartment where Lizzie was heading to on the night she disappeared. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today. To, has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Soon enough, a disturbing picture of Mazelia began to emerge. Mazelia had an account on the online dating website, OKCupid, with the username DarkKazer. On a questionnaire on the website, he described himself as more dominant, more sex-driven, and more experienced at sex, as well as less kind, less compassionate, and less conventionally moral. He also had an account on the website FetLife.com with that same username. FetLife is an online community for people who are into BDSM and other fetishes. As per his profile, he was interested in a lifetime relationship, a play partner, princess by day, slop by night, a sub. In addition to these two profiles, Mazelia also had one on Bondage.com, in which he wrote that he was a master looking for a slave. Now, these sort of fetishes and interests are totally harmless among consenting parties. Mazzilia had a former girlfriend, Catherine Fish, and while they were together many years prior, she had become concerned about his sexual interests. One night, while they were in a hotel room, Mazzilia had began to strangle her while engaged in a sexual act. She had shouted at him to stop, and he did, but the incident had left her shaken. She continued the relationship, but Mazzilia became what she described as severely sexually abusive and he refused to take no for an answer. Catherine said that Mazelia would throw a tantrum to the extent he was throwing things when she refused to have sex with him. 
This disturbing revelation led to speculation that there was a possible sexual element to the murder of Lizzie. A week would pass and the search for Lizzie continued and expanded. The entire area remained closed while the search party fanned out. The currents in the water had been strong, and Lizzie's body could have travelled upstream. Investigators requested the assistance of fish and game, who planned dives within the area. One week gradually turned into two weeks, and then three weeks. It really was of utmost importance that the body of Lizzie was found, not only for closure for her family, but because it would also assist in the prosecution's case against Mazelia. In cases where a victim's body is not found, then the prosecution has the burden of proving that the murder did occur. Simply a confession is not always enough to secure a conviction. Towards the end of October, students at the University of New Hampshire held a vigil to raise awareness about sexual assault and rape on the campus and in the community. Students were coming together to take back the night and to highlight that nobody should be afraid to walk alone at night. Since the murder of Lizzie, a lot of women in the area had been afraid of walking home alone, even more so when it was dark. The vigil would culminate with a march across the campus. Some within the community would be empowered to do something positive in the aftermath of the murder. Local woman Alyssa Stone established a personal safety course for girls and women in the area. The course, which was called Empower the Girls We Love Training 101, was intended to improve confidence as well as reduce risk, raise awareness and develop a plan to successfully handle potential threats. With the festive period fast approaching, families were looking forward to getting together with their loved ones and exchanging gifts. For Catherine McDonough, on Christmas Eve she was arrested and charged with one count of hindering apprehension or prosecution and one count of conspiracy to commit the same crime. McDonough's bail was set at $35,000. According to prosecutors, McDonough and Mazelia conspired to give investigators a fake alibi about their whereabouts on the night of the 9th of October and told investigators that Lizzie had never arrived at their apartment. Mazelia said he had gone out for a run that night, but while out he hurt his ankle, so it took him a bit longer to return home to the apartment. He said that when he got home he expected Lizzie would be there, but she wasn't. This was false. Investigators had uncovered that Lizzie had shown up at the apartment as arranged, but then she had been killed in the apartment. In an attempt to throw off investigators, McDonough had texted Lizzie after her death, asking where she was and why she hadn't arrived. When their plan began to crumble, the couple quickly came up with a handful more scenarios some of which even pointed the finger at one another. The second version of events from Mazelia was that he had arrived at the apartment after his run to find McDonough and another couple there. He said that he immediately sensed that something was wrong. He said that he then noticed Lizzie. She was dead and there was a line across her neck, which indicated to him that somebody had strangled her. Once again, investigators pressed for more information. They knew that Mazelia was lying. He was offering so many explanations, completely shattering any credibility that he thought he had. He then made the preposterous claim that he, Lizzie, and McDonough had been playing strip poker when they began to chat about BDSM. The world of BDSM was something that Mazelia and McDonough were very familiar with. 
They participated in it on a regular basis, using knives, ropes, and leather restraints during sex. On occasion, they had a third person join them, and McDonough was always the submissive one, or the slave, in the relationship, and sometimes they would have sex up to nine times a day. Mazelia alleged to investigators that this conversation led to a consensual sex encounter which involved autoerotic asphyxiation. At some point, he said that McDonough also became involved. He described using a rope to accidentally strangle Lizzie to death, claiming that their BDSM sexual encounter went too far. Mazelia explained to investigators that Lizzie appeared to have a seizure. He said he checked her body for a pulse and then placed a plastic bag over her head. Ironically, both Mazelia and McDonough had formal medical training, yet neither of them rendered medical aid. This was something that prosecutors would immediately decry, with Senior Assistant Attorney General Jeffrey Streslin stating in the media, there's no proof of anything consensual. On the contrary, it was not consensual. After Lizzie was dead, McDonough phoned Roberta Gherkin and Paul Highcock, a couple from Rochester. She asked them to come to their apartment in Dover to help with something, but did not disclose what that something was. When the couple arrived, Mazelia asked them if they could keep a secret. They were then led into the apartment where they saw Lizzie on the floor. She was clothed in only a pair of blue underwear, and there were plastic bags over her head and face. Gherkin used a box cutter to remove the plastic bags and noticed that Lizzie was blue in the face and evidently dead. With their two friends there, Mazelia then discussed how to get rid of Lizzie's body. He told Gherkin and Highcock that he had blacked out and said something along the lines of, This time, I went too far. McDonough told the couple that at first, Lizzie's death appeared to be accidental, but then turned purposeful. After Mazzilli admitted to investigators that Lizzie was dead, he told them that he had dumped her body in the river, which was where the search had been focusing on. While investigators at the time said that credible information had led them to search the shores around Pierce Island, they didn't disclose to the public what that credible information was. It had come from Mazzilia himself. He had accompanied State Police Sergeant Joseph Ebert and another investigator to the location where he had allegedly disposed of Lizzie's body. He noted how he purposefully took the back roads from Dover to Portsmouth so that he could avoid detection. He led the investigators along a footpath that was adjacent to the shipyard. He described the area as the grotto. There was a large concrete pad surrounded by a fence. According to Mazelia, he flipped Lizzie's body over the fence and then threw her body off a small cliff and into the dark waters. He also threw her cell phone into the water as well. However, Mazelia then noticed that Lizzie's body was not completely submerged in the water. He feared that somebody would spot her, so as he said, he completed the task. While speaking with investigators about disposing of Lizzie's body, he made a joking reference to Davy Jones' locker. With Lizzie's body submerged, Mazelia McDonough drove to the Residence Inn at One International Drive in Portsmouth, where they disposed of trash bags and the tarp that they had used to transport Lizzie's body. They then threw items in a dumpster behind the hotel. From here, they drove Lizzie's car to the parking lot at the University of New Hampshire 
where they abandoned it. They had also broken her cell phone and her GPS tracking system. They then left on foot, disposing of Lizzie's possessions in a dumpster behind the University of New Hampshire horse barn, and then disposing of some more, in a dumpster somewhere between Village Pizza and Libby's. They arrived back at their apartment on Mill Street at around 6.15am the following morning. Back at home, they removed the clothing they had been wearing and then placed them in a white trash bag, which was then dumped in a dumpster near their apartment complex. According to Mazelia, he and McDonough then had sex. As he said, McDonough was excited about what had happened the night beforehand. Once Mazelia was arrested, he had sent handwritten letters to McDonough, in which they conspired to frame and kill Roberta Gherkin and Paul Highcock, the two friends. In the letters, Mazelia asked McDonough to help him conceal the crime and shared his desire to frame and kill the other couple and then flee to another country with McDonough that did not have an extradition treaty with the United States. There were further discussions between the couple about marriage so that McDonough could invoke marital privilege to avoid testifying. I had an idea. Oh? Um, I was thinking maybe after the trial's over and everything, Yeah. we could just get married one way or another. That's what I would say. Actually, there's... uh... I've been trying to figure out what the policy of marriage while someone's in jail is. I know you can do it. Yeah, it's just I figuring it up out. online. Yeah. Um, if you look in and find some way to do that and you want to do that, I mean, I envision myself getting a ring and doing this all proper, but I am fine with that. I, because you know, I, I would be, you know... I hate having to say, you know, it's just my boyfriend. I want to say, you know, yeah. it's my husband. Oh, yeah, no, it drives me nuts whenever they ask, you know, what's your marital status? Single, you know, married, divorced, widowed, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, you know, I keep wanting to say married and this is my wife. Yeah. You know. Um, I've been engaged a couple times. Mazelia told McDonough that if none of these plans worked, then she must complete suicide so they could start their life again. Mazzilli had always told McDonough that they had lived together in their past lives and when they died, the cycle would continue and they would be together again in their next life. In fact, he laid out a very disturbing ritual in the letter, telling McDonough what she needed to do so that they could be together. First of all, she was supposed to seduce her brother Ben into having sex with her and then go to a frat house and have sex with at least 10 men. According to Mazelia, this ritual would gather energy. Dear Scarlet, my love, I love you, I miss you. I write this because you requested it. It is a backup in case everything goes wrong. That is all it is. Trust in my judgment, accept Murphy's help, and all this will be rendered moot. But in case something goes wrong, it's oversimplified, but this letter explains and begins spelling out rituals to reset and recall past lives. Of course, if all else fails, a return to Sovngarde is always possible, if not ideal. Trust in Murphy. Trust in me. Our life together here in this world may change, but it will be long, good, and we can have it. And I want every moment with you I can get. We can do it. Just follow my lead. Mazelia had ordered McDonough to rip up and flush the letter. She did rip it up, but she kept it 
and investigators were able to piece it back together. Investigators also recovered some text messages between Mazelia and McDonough. There was a handful between McDonough and somebody with the first name Andy between the 7th and the 11th of October, which was around the same time that Lizzie was killed. Well, in these text messages, McDonough and Andy discussed the BDSM lifestyle and discussed the idea of Andy and her boyfriend taking part in a non-specified sexual encounter at Mazelia's apartment. The prospective date of this encounter was during the week of October 8th. Investigators had tracked this Andy woman down. She told them that the plan was for her and her boyfriend to visit the apartment on the 9th of October, but they changed this date to the 10th of October. They stuck with these plans and went to the apartment on that date, the day after Lizzie was killed in that same apartment. Andy would show investigators an online account of Mazelia and McDonough that had been posted on a fetish and BDSM website. They stated that they were looking for a submissive who could come and live with them. A further search of Mazelia's cell phone and McDonough's cell phone would reveal that back in August, Mazelia had sent McDonough a text message which laid out in graphic detail her role as a submissive and his role as a dominant in their BDSM sexual acts. He also discussed performing sexual acts on a friend of McDonough while she watched. There was a further discussion in which McDonough was told to select a friend that she would then offer to Mazelia, who would do anything to this friend, while McDonough watched. Based on this evidence, it was clear that Mazelia and McDonough had been trawling through fetish websites in search of a sex slave. Investigators believed that while searching for somebody to offer Mazelia, they settled on Lizzie, McDonough's new friend from work. When Lizzie was invited over to their apartment, the motivation wasn't to go to the cemetery to take photographs, like McDonough had claimed. Following McDonough's arrest and the grim revelations that she was involved in her own friend's murder, her family would come to her defence. They claimed that she had been manipulated by Mazelia, who had prevented her from contacting them. McDonough had moved out of her parents' home during school vacation when she was in high school, just the year before Lizzie vanished. She left a note on her pillow, but she did not indicate where she was going. Her family learned through friends that she had moved in with Mazelia at his apartment on Mill Road. She was 11 years Mazelia's junior. She was 18 years old at the time, while Mazelia was 29. McDonough's family had tried to get her to return home, and when they showed up at Mazelia's apartment to try and encourage her, he just stood there in front of the doorway, with his chest out and his arms closed. Since she was legally an adult, there was really nothing they could do. Once she moved out, she cut off all contact with her parents, and now they were claiming that she was innocent of any wrongdoing, that she had been manipulated by Mazelia. Her parents posted her bail and welcomed her back into their home. As a way to memorialise Lizzie early the next year, Lizzie's family established the Lizzie Marriott Interpret Explorers Fund. In her college essay, she had written that she was determined to be a prominent figure when it comes to protecting the ocean. Bob said that he often read the essay, and it made him smile as well as made him choke up. But more than that, it inspired him. The family really wanted something to honour Lizzie and focus on what she had wanted to accomplish in her life. 
The purpose of the scholarship was to help raise funds for other people who desired to meet Lizzie's goal of protecting the ocean and helping people learn the wonders of the water. In announcing the scholarship, Bob said, She will not be able to do it, but through this we can help other people do it for her. They would hold a night of remembrance at the Indian Meadows Golf Club to raise money for the fund, and preference would be given to Westboro High School graduates, volunteers at the New England Aquarium, and students at the University of New Hampshire that were studying marine biology. Like he had done beforehand, Bob spoke before the crowd. He recollected some of his fondest memories he had of his daughter, and ended his speech by stating, I hope everyone has an awesome, fun time tonight, remembering Lizzie. Lizzie's family truly bonded together in the wake of tragedy, and they wanted to bring something positive out of the worst event of their life. They knew that the scholarship was something that Lizzie would have wanted, to see somebody else get to achieve her greatest dreams in life. They would get a great head start with the Night of Remembrance, which brought in a whopping $75,000. Just as the scholarship began accepting applicants, a grand jury would indict McDonough on felony charges of hindering apprehension or prosecution, conspiracy to commit hindering apprehension or prosecution, and witness tampering. Did you know that the most common cause of grinding and clenching your teeth is stress? We all have stress in our lives, whether it be financial, personal or something else. For me personally, I know I stress about deadlines. Once you grind your enamel, you don't get it back. And those with worn, chipped and cracked enamel have much more sensitive teeth. There can be cosmetic fixes such as implants, veneers and teeth crowns, but they're super expensive. That's where Smile Brilliant Snight Guards come in. If you get them from the dentist, it can cost up to $600. But at Smile Brilliant, you can get them as low as $45 per night guard. Just head to smilebrilliant.com slash morbidology to get a 20% discount for your night guard. Smile Brilliant do so much more as well, such as custom-fitted teeth whitening trays, whitening gel, electric toothbrushes, water flossers, and more. Take better care of your teeth today at smilebrilliant.com slash morbidology and get 20% off. Who doesn't love a classic whodunit? Well, I've got the perfect game for all you armchair detectives out there, June's Journey. It is a free-to-download mobile puzzle game set in the glamorous 1920s. In June's Journey, you get to play as an amateur detective as she investigates a series of mysteries. You'll find yourself involved in a murder mystery that you need to solve. Along the way, you'll meet some unique characters, and they can provide tips that will help you along the way. June's Journey is a really relaxing game, and even quite a therapeutic game. I love playing it at night before I go to sleep. It also tests your observations and helps keep your mind fresh. Ready to awaken your inner detective? Download June's Journey free today on the Apple App Store or Google Play. Shortly thereafter, Mazzilia would be indicted on the same charge, as well as a first-degree murder charge. It was a long time coming, but understandably Lizzie's family wanted more charges filed against McDonough. Based on the evidence, it was clear that she was just as much a willing participant in the attack on Lizzie as Mazzilia. She had also assisted in disposing of Lizzie's body and her belongings. 
while Lizzie's family were anticipating further charges to be filed against McDonough. She appeared in court towards the end of July, where she pleaded guilty to hindering the prosecution, conspiracy, and tampering with a witness. The plea was in exchange of a sentence of one and a half to three years in prison on the condition that she testifies against Mazzelia. The sentence was an absolute slap in the face of justice. Lizzie's family referred to it as a gross injustice and accused McDonough of betraying Lizzie's friendship by, first of all, luring her over to the apartment and, secondly, by not helping her. Lizzie's mother, Melissa, said that the crime she was convicted of did not adequately convey her conduct or her culpability. The convictions are classified as victimless crimes, which was something Melissa disputed, telling McDonough, yours were the actions of a cold, calculating woman trying to stay out of trouble. Victimless? I don't think so. Lizzie's grandmother, Susan Marriott, echoed this sentiment, telling McDonough, you invited her to her death. McDonough's defence attorney, Andrew Catrupi, would state that he wanted to spell any notion that Lizzie was somehow complicit in her own death. He said that Lizzie went over to his client's apartment that night to watch a movie. He stated, She said no to a man that would not accept that. She is fully blameless in her death. Catherine recognises that. It was the first time that Mazelia or McDonough had acknowledged that Lizzie had not died during a consensual sex act gone wrong. The plea agreement had been reached with the approval of Lizzie's family. While they weren't happy with it, they did accept it to further the prosecution of Mazelia. It was apparent from McDonough's defence lawyer's statement that she was ready to turn on her former boyfriend and place the blame for what happened directly on him. Since there was no body, the prosecution really needed a key witness for the upcoming trial. Before McDonough was handcuffed and taken to the van which would transport her to prison, Superior Court Judge Marguerite Wakeling, had some strong words to say to her. She stated, But for you, Elizabeth Marriott would be alive today. But for your cowardly and selfish actions, she would be alive or this family would have a body to lay to rest. You will carry that in your conscience for the rest of your life. At the time, New Hampshire had no accessory to murder charge. In the wake of McDonald's plea, the State Attorney General's office announced that they were willing into looking whether a proposed Lizzie's Law would be able to combat deficiencies in the state's criminal statutes. Lizzie's family had wanted McDonough charged as an accessory to murder, but no such statute existed in New Hampshire. As the case was meandering through the justice system, Mazzelia was incarcerated at Stratford County Jail. In November of 2013, he was charged with planning an armed and violent breakout from jail. The escape plot had happened the year beforehand in December. Mazzelia had provided a man with detailed plans and directives for the escape, even giving the man access to his bank account to finance the plot. The man he enlisted was Ryan Backman, who was his former cellmate. Mazzelia had ordered Backman to obtain a gun, two cars and disguises, and he planned the escape for a day he was scheduled to go to court for a hearing. He had additionally given the man the address of Gherkin and Highcock and told him that he wanted them dead. Mazzelia had said to him that if they were taken care of, then there wouldn't be much of a case against him. Instead of taking part in the elaborate plot, Backman had taken around $1,000 from Mazzelia's bank account 
and then purchase drugs with them. Like I said, it literally fell into my lap. And I didn't say no, and I should have, but I said, okay. I went with no intentions of doing any of it, and I took the money. It wasn't anything I had plotted or schemed. It just happened. I didn't go into that cell with a trying to take advantage of Seth and Zelia. No, I wanted to be out of jail. I couldn't wait till I got out. I was in there with someone who was clearly psychopathic, and I just wanted to get out of there unscathed. I yad my way through a lot of conversations, and it was kind of scary with how desperate he was pushing this on me, pushing this on me, pushing this on me. So yeah, you know what? When I left, I friggin' took the money and I didn't look back. I didn't feel like I was doing any big disservice to the country. By mid-May the following year, the jury were selected and the murder trial was ready to begin. There had been quite a media circus involving the murder case and it was anticipated that the trial was going to be no different. On day one, media trucks surrounded the court building and reporters were hanging around everywhere. On the 28th of May, the jury were seated and the courtroom was filled to the brim with curious onlookers. During opening statements, the prosecution painted a lurid picture of Mazelia as sexually dominant and put forward their suggestion that he had propositioned Lizzie and when she turned him down, he refused to accept her rebuff. Assistant Attorney General Peter Hinckley described the scenario. He said that Mazelia, McDonough and Lizzie were playing strip poker and afterwards, Mazelia asked Lizzie for sex. Lizzie said no. He said that after being denied sex, Mazelia told Lizzie that she would watch him have sex with McDonough. Once again, Lizzie said she wasn't interested. Prosecutor Hinckley said she rejected the master again in his home where he got wherever he wanted sexually, so he took what Lizzie denied him. He described how Mazelia put on a pair of gloves, walked to the back of the sofa where Lizzie and McDonough were watching a movie, and slipped a rope around Lizzie's neck. Mazelia pulled the rope hard so that Lizzie didn't stand a chance. Prosecutor Hinckley stated, The defendant struck quick, without warning, and with absolutely no mercy. Lizzie had time to let out a quick, terrifying cry, but had time for little else. He choked her for minutes until she could no longer deny him. Afterwards, the prosecutor detailed how Mazelia raped Lizzie as McDonough watched. When it was time for the defence's opening statements, it became apparent that the defence and the prosecution were authorising two polarising versions of events from that night. They were going to place the blame for Lizzie's murder on the star witness of the trial, Catherine McDonough. According to defence attorney Walking Barth, McDonough was the sexual manipulator in the relationship. He said that Lizzie had died when they suffocated her during a rough sex act that they claimed was consensual. He went on to claim that Mazzelia was overwhelmed by panic when he discovered that Lizzie was dead, and his judgement and conduct after this, such as disposing of the body and the other evidence, was compounded by the love and obsession he had for his girlfriend McDonough. He said to the jury, This lonely gamer met this engaged, involved, creative and self-described nymphomaniac. He fell for her. Countering this accusation, Prosecutor Hinckley acknowledged that McDonough should have received a harsher penalty for her role in the murder, but added, 
desperate for all McDonough did. She did not rape Lizzie, and she did not kill Lizzie. Early testimony would focus on the incriminating letters between Mazelia and McDonough, in which Mazelia spoke about wanting to kill and frame the two friends they had asked to come over and see Lizzie's body. The jury would also hear from some of Lizzie's loved ones, including her aunt and her girlfriend. Brittany told the jury about the text messages Lizzie had sent her from the night she was killed, letting her know that she was going to visit a friend. The last message she received from Lizzie simply read, You're so cute. After that, Brittany sent Lizzie two more messages, but each one went unanswered. As this testimony was presented, Bob, Lizzie's father, cried in the front row of the courtroom. On day three of the trial, the neighbourhood heard the loud scream on the night that Lizzie was killed, took to the witness stand. Rose Massione said that she had been watching television when she heard what she described as a high-pitched, blood-curdling scream. Roberta Gherkin, who had seen Lizzie's body, would detail the scenario to the jury. The body itself was naked with the exception of underpants. Um, The head was covered in a, a grocery bag. After she saw the body, she said, My reaction was to go numb. It was almost like my emotions switched off and I went into complete logic mode at that point. She painted Mazelia as a volatile and controlling person with multiple personalities. At one point in time, she and Mazelia had been in somewhat of a sexual relationship. But that only included her giving him oral sex. As she said, if she refused, he would become irate and explode with anger. When Mazelia began his relationship with McDonough, he would expect her to check in with him at times while she was away, such as when she was an instructor at a theatre camp. He said that if she didn't check in on him, people would be dead. McDonough would then take to the witness stand. She told the jury that Mazelia had demanded she bring him a friend to have sex with. This was punishment for McDonough leaving him for 12 days to go to theatre camp. A friend had dropped her home from camp, and when she entered the apartment, Mazelia ordered her to strip down and put on small black lingerie, which he had left out for her. She told the jury, He told me to kneel down, and I did. She said that she then had what she described as a very rough encounter with Mazelia, who hit her, twisted her skin, and smacked her. It was, it was really rough. It was... And now looking back on it, like, it's just, it was not something I wanted to do. But I know I didn't have an option because I know I had messed up. And I had to, I know he expected me to take the punishment, so I did. She explained that the punishment didn't stop there. She told the jury, he told me I was his slave until he said otherwise. I was expected to do whatever he wanted whenever he wanted. In regards to the friend that Mazelia told McDonough he wanted her to bring him, he had told her that he wanted the friend to die of orgasms in front of McDonough. He was really looking for anyone as long as they would be, as long as he would be dominant over them. Um, He didn't care if they were completely submissive to everyone, like me including, or if they would dominate me would be submissive to him. And you talked about in terms of some physical attributes would be uh, young and, and slender? Yes. Someone like Lizzie? Yes. 
He had written down on a piece of paper, The second prize is this. You choose a friend. Any of them will do. I think it would be fitting if the first thing you saw was if I pleasured one of your friends until they died of orgasms. And only then do I turn my brutal attention towards you. McDonough thought that she had secured a partner, but this woman backed out of it. When she informed Mazelia, he texted her by telling her that he was going to punish her by tying her up and raping her repeatedly. She told the jury that he made good on that threat and ordered her to make good on his demand. It was around this time that McDonough befriended Lizzie. The prosecutor asked why, and she replied, I liked her. It was what he was looking for. She also said she knew that Lizzie had a girlfriend and would therefore be open to being sexual with girls. She went on to detail the first time that Lizzie visited their apartment. Mazelia ordered her to be more flirty and suggested not wearing a bra the next time she came over. It was their intention to involve Lizzie in a BDSM threesome, noting that Mazelia was obsessed with bringing other women into their relationship, ordering her to scar the internet for potential partners. When Lizzie was invited over, she thought that she was coming over to watch movies and play video games. The truth was far more sinister. Testimony then shifted to the night of the murder. McDonough said to the courtroom that the trio played strip poker, and afterwards, Mazelia suggested to Lizzie that she kiss McDonough. He said something like, if, if, if that was okay with her, and she said that it wasn't, because... She was in a very committed relationship and she just didn't want to be a part of that. Mazelia then suggested that she watch him and McDonough have sex. Once again, Lizzie refused. Mazelia was unaccustomed to being told no. She detailed how Mazelia crept up behind Lizzie, looped a rope over her neck and strangled her. She was sitting right next to me. And he moved up close behind her. He was still on the bed. And he wrapped the rope over her head and around her neck and started pulling on it. Um, she let out a quick noise. And... And she's sort of stopped moving. According to McDonough, she went into the bathroom and when she came out, Mazelia was raping Lizzie and calling her names. Lizzie was motionless on the floor, but she seemingly wasn't dead. Mazelia ordered McDonough to hold the rope around Lizzie's neck while he went into the bathroom. She claimed that she held the rope loosely around her neck and then noticed that Lizzie's mouth opened a bit. She claimed that she felt no pulse. McDonough appeared to be emotional on the witness stand, but it was noted by the defence that there were no actual tears. You had discussed with the jurors Take a moment. Judge, maybe we can take a break now. <laughs> McDonough went on to explain how the couple disposed of Lizzie's body. The prosecutor asked how McDonough could even consider marrying Mazelia, like their letters and phone calls had indicated, after he raped 
and murdered her friend. She stated, I love him, and I thought he was protecting me. The testimony was extremely disturbing, and only began to highlight just how terrified Lizzie must have felt. Once McDonough was finished her testimony, the defence tried to poke holes in her story, accusing her of trying to convince jurors that she was possessed by an imaginary character that she had created. Defence Barth asserted that she had placed the blame on Mazelia, just so that she could get a more lenient sentence. The defence did not go easy on McDonough, and he went back to the night in question. You went over and closed the curtain to hide what you had just done. No. While Seth was busy trying to take the harness off. No, there was no harness on her. That after she had a seizure and was stopped breathing, you went over to the window to hide what you had just done. No, I went over to the window. I hadn't done anything. He was in the process of murdering her, and I didn't know what to do. You claimed to the grand jury that you thought Seth Mazelia might kill you. If I had tried to stop him, it was something that I was worried about, yes. Your instincts for survival did not prompt you to scream out the open window as you were directly in front of it. No, because I thought if I screamed out, then he might hurt me. Your instincts for survival did not cause you to try and get the attention of the neighbors directly across the river. I thought that if I tried to get any help or if I tried to stop him, that that would be it for me too. In that moment, there was no... I was caught between all of those emotions and the fact that I still loved him and didn't want to lose him. All of those were hitting me really hard and I didn't know what to do. Defense Barth then revealed that after Manzelia was arrested, McDonough had come to his office and told his employees that she had killed Lizzie while having sex with her. Part of this interview was played aloud during which she displayed how Lizzie had died. Um, the over-controlling... But I felt like there must have been some way that I actually would like it. Okay. And I, I kind of want, I was like, I kind of want that. Um, and there was a paragraph. Um, I'm sorry, Seth was what? Uh, kind of, not instructing her, but kind of like saying, I mean, like, you know, you can do this. You know what I mean? Why don't you do this? Okay, so he was telling... Yeah. Lizzie thinks she could do to you or to him or both? To uh, me. A question on this page. Yeah. Um, you said that you were sitting on Lizzie's face for probably 10 or 15 minutes mm -hmm. and you described that you were kneeling with your heels behind you. Yeah. Can you explain that to me a little more? Um, are you, how are you I actually just, uh, okay. do you mind if I actually yeah, no remove this? So it was like this. Okay, so that's how... Yeah, and then I could do that and lean how I wanted to using my muscles. Okay, and Lizzie's... On the ground. On the ground between your legs. Mm -hmm. Okay. Defense Barth stated, You described in detail that you were literally on her face for 10 to 15 minutes. McDonough claimed that she had made this up simply because she wanted to protect her boyfriend. Talked about taking her body out. You did not flinch. 
It's because I was making up a story. I was adding details, but a lot of it was just a story. It wasn't real. So I was able to push the images aside and just think about keeping up with the fake story I was telling you. And then, um, I mean, right now it's just, this is when it's really being told. This is when you really everyone's finding you. out. Cry without tears, Miss McDonough. What? You cry without tears. I don't know. Um, sometimes I guess. The defence would try to portray McDonough as the dominant one in the relationship. They presented evidence that she had researched fetishes and viewed pornography of women dominating men, but she said that this did not prove that she wanted to dominate Mazilia. McDonough. Testified for 10 days, and when her testimony was complete, some forensic evidence was presented. Melissa Staples, the assistant director of the New Hampshire State Forensics Lab, revealed that investigators had found a pair of underwear in the dumpster behind the couple's apartment. DNA testing on this underwear revealed DNA from Mazelia, McDonough, and Lizzie. A used condom was also found which contained Mazelia's DNA in the form of semen. In addition to McDonough's recorded interview wherein she said she had killed Lizzie accidentally by sitting on her face, the defence would call on Dr. Ira Canfer, who was being paid $4,000 for his testimony. He said he believed that Lizzie had been smothered as opposed to strangled. He said the theory that McDonough was the killer was very much plausible. However, how he reached this conclusion was not very clear. Lizzie's body had never been recovered. After two and a half weeks of testimony, the defence and the prosecution rested their cases. During closing arguments, Assistant Attorney General Jeffrey Ward asked the jury to send Mazelia a message that they could see through his lies. He stated, This case, above all else, is about the truth. He is a cold-blooded killer, given the justice he has tried in so many ways for so long to avoid. Defence Barth tried to portray Mazelia as a protective and loving boyfriend, and McDonough as a liar who was only trying to protect herself. It was now time for the jury to determine Mazelia's fate. They had been presented two completely opposite scenarios, one where Mazelia was the killer, and the other where McDonough was the killer. They would ultimately reject the defence's arguments and find Seth Mazelia guilty of first-degree murder. Outside of court, Bob spoke with the media. We will always miss her and we wonder what could have been. In fact, the trial has been torturous for us. The truth of what happened to Lizzie is horrendous and every time it's been told, it has reinforced the despair that we feel. He also had some strong words for Mazelia's defence team, who he accused of intentionally misdating his daughter's actions on the night of her murder. He said that Lizzie was dead and unable to defend herself from the mischaracterization, The sentencing phase would follow. Mazelia showed his true character when he tried to be excused from the sentencing phase. In a phone call to his mother, Heather, he said, But I'm going to have to sit there for an hour and a half, listening to them yell and whine and bitch and moan and scream about how I'm a monster who killed someone when I'm not. The judge refused to allow Mazelia to skip the sentencing phase and he was forced to listen to the poignant victim impact statements that he was desperately trying to avoid. 
Lizzie's mother, Melissa, was the first one to speak. She stared directly at Mazelia and said, Mr. Mazelia, I want you to know that I unequivocally hate you. You're a cowardly, despicable person. You stole our smart, vivacious, beautiful daughter from us. You murdered Lizzie, raped her lifeless body, and then threw her away because Lizzie had the self-confidence and self-esteem to say no to you. Bob walked around the courtroom with an enlarged photograph of Lizzie for everyone to see. He said he wished that good would triumph over evil, but Mazzilli was proof beyond any doubt of how untrue that was. You were pathetic. You were guilty of purposely killing my daughter, a murderer. You were guilty of killing while raping my daughter, a rapist. You were guilty of conspiring to tamper with witnesses, a liar. You were guilty of conspiring to falsify evidence, a coward. Your legacy is a pathetic, cowardly, lying, rapist, and murderer. Or in your words, monster. Lizzie was a good person who worked to make the world a better place. When you killed her, you cemented your place on the side of evil. Your murder of Lizzie, of all the good she would have done and now will never be, is a tragedy for everyone. Lizzie is gone. I still find that hard to comprehend. You murdered her over a year and a half ago, and every day, I wonder what you would have been doing. Lizzie's uncle, Tony, referred to Messelia as a twisted individual who only brought darkness and pain into the world. Another uncle, Jeff Bailey, delivered a statement. Mr. Messelia, it's been a rough day for you. I'd like to help you understand what a beautiful life is. I want you to close your eyes for a second. Really, close your eyes and concentrate. Do you remember the smell of an early spring rain, the plush green of new leaves, and the color of new flowers blossoming? Can you hear the song of a spring peeper signaling the end of winter? Flash forward to summer. It's a hot day with a cool breeze blowing. The noise of gulls mixed with the buzz of bees smell of fried dough drifts through the air. Does it bring back any memories? Now it's autumn. Crisp winds blow the colorful leaves from the trees. Families of geese fly overhead. Kids are in the yards playing football. Can you almost smell those leaves? Winter slips in. The frosty air kisses exposed skin with a welcome sting. Pure white snow blankets the ground. A lone blue jay sits in the branch of a white birch. Does that give you a shiver? Now look at me. Because of you, Lizzie will never get to enjoy these again. We will never forget Lizzie. Whenever spring flowers blossom, we will remember her natural beauty. Every spring peeper will sing her name in joy. Blue skies will reflect her crystal blue eyes. When the splash of the ocean waves lap over our feet, we'll remember her dream of being a marine biologist and making a difference. Brittany, Lizzie's girlfriend, also provided a statement. I stand here before you all not only as Lizzie's best friend, but as her girlfriend. 
One day you wake up and you're with the love of your life and you're the happiest girl in the universe. Then the next day she's gone. Just like that. No warning. No nothing. Everything is taken away in an instant. Your heart, your soul, your pride, your hope, your faith, and your love are torn from your body. Life doesn't prepare you for this. For this feeling of loss, tragedy, emptiness, darkness, and hate. It can't be explained. But Lizzie's life and who she was can be. Lizzie was, still is, and always, and will always be the most amazing, wonderful, beautiful, and talented person, friend, and girlfriend in the whole entire world. I mean universe. Those are pretty much the last words that I texted her that horrific night. I just hope to God that she saw it. I will never forget how much of a bright light she was. She was beaming with love, generosity, kindness, laughter, determination, strength, intelligence, talent, faithfulness, positivity, etc. I could go on for days. And she was always smiling. She was beautiful inside and out. You look the word beautiful up in the dictionary and her name is there. Never again will I be able to hold her hand, hug her, make her laugh, share special moments, memories, stories, affection and comfort with her. Nor will I ever be able to hear her calming voice and words. Throughout every day that goes by, something reminds me of her. Something happens that I wish I could share with her. Every time I see an octopus and, and anything marine-related, I want to show her and tell her about it. Lizzie will always be my girlfriend, my hero, and the love of my life. I will never stop thinking about her. And Lizzie's love for the ocean and all that it embraces and stands for will never die. I love you, Lizzie, with all of my heart, and I always will, now and forever. Thank you. The victim impact statements were genuinely heartbreaking, and they only offered a tragic insight into the grief the family had been put through. You can really tell how proud everyone was of Lizzie and get a feel for the hole that had been left in their hearts with her passing. Before being sentenced, Mazzulia was given the opportunity to make a statement. Do you wish to be heard on behalf of Mr. Mazzalia, or does he wish to speak? This is his opportunity under our Constitution to speak, uh, if he wishes. Mr. Mazzalia, I'm not authorized. Mr. Mazzalia? I do wish to speak. You have that right under our Constitution, sir. I did not rape and murder Elizabeth Marriott. However, I do understand the Marriott family's pain. And I did play a part in covering up her death. A mistake that I tried to correct when investigators came to me, I tried to sh I showed them exactly where I had left Lizzie's body. Unfortunately, they were unable to recover her, and for that, I am truly sorry. My heart goes out to the Marriott family, and I am very sorry for their loss. That is all. Seth Mazzilia was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. In 2014, McDonough was denied parole for the first time. In the aftermath of the trial and the sentencing phase, a new bill was introduced to mandate defendants to avoid sentencing hearings. Mazzilia had filed a request to skip sentencing, only causing further pain to Lizzie's family, who wanted to let him know how they felt. New Hampshire House Bill 225 would ban convicts from skipping the sentencing phase of their trial. It was signed into law in 2015. The following year, 
McDonough was granted parole. On the night that Lizzie Marriott was killed, she believed that she was going to visit a friend, somebody she thought that she could trust, and somebody she thought had her best interests at heart. Lizzie's body has never been found, which only intensifies the grief of her loved ones and robs them of a chance to say, Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Goodbye. With no body, there is no funeral and no gravestone for the family to visit. Still to this day, when the family want to speak to Lizzie, they go to Pierce Island and stare into the murky waters. They know that Lizzie is no longer there. The waters where she was disposed of flow into the vast Atlantic Ocean. As her father Bob once said, I want to say goodbye to a person when they die. That is something I'll never be able to do with my baby. Well, besties, that is it for this episode of Morbidology. As always, thank you so, so much for listening. I'd love to say a big, 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 massive thank you to my amazing new Patreon supporters, Lisa and Pamela. Support on Patreon seriously helps the show so much, and I am eternally grateful. If you'd like to support the show, please do check Morbidology out on Patreon. In exchange for your support, you get bonus episodes of Morbidology Plus, ad-free and early release episodes, merch, a handwritten thank you card, and bonus content including audio and videos. Remember to check us out at morbidology.com for more information about this episode and to read our true crime articles. Until next time, take care of yourselves, stay safe, and have an amazing week. Do you wait patiently every week for Netflix to drop its latest true crime offering? Do your suggested videos on YouTube look like a top 10 countdown of the most unbelievable crime cases? Well, you are among friends. What's Up Doc, the true crime documentary podcast is a bi-weekly show hosted by me, Gemma Delaney. Don't forget to subscribe to hear all about the best and latest true crime documentaries out there. And you can find us at What's Up Doc Podcast on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. What's Up Doc, the true crime documentary podcast. Season four is out now. Let me tell you what's up.